Hey everyone, and welcome to No Planet B, where we're talking about climate change and its effects on planet A. I'm Wyatt. And I'm Brianna. And this week, we're going to be talking about climate modeling. What the heck is that? What the heck is that? <laughs> we're going to talk about it. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so this, yeah, this week we talked to a professor of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Science at FSU, uh, Vasu Misra. This guy has over 90 publications under his belt. He's very sweet and very knowledgeable to talk to. This episode was really fun, uh, really informative, and yeah, let's dive straight into it. Head first. Here we go. Uh, so what are some of the, the main challenges of real-time climate predictions? Uh, first of all, I think uh, one needs to understand that uh, federal uh, and uh, regional and local agencies are involved in the business of making real-time weather prediction uh, across the world. Uh, the challenges are many in the sense that obviously uh, the appetite for getting forecast information is insatiable for the people who consume it. We always are curious to know what the future holds, either at the shortest time scale, which is the weather time scale, or on the sub-seasonal scales out to about a month, or out to a season, or out to a decade, or out to century away from us, or 100 years from now. The challenge is obviously what is predictable, what is not predictable, or known, unknown, and what is unknowable. And part of the challenge, therefore, is to ascertain whether we can predict a certain event or not. And then researchers like us at the university are also trying to bring these forecasts to a much more finer scale resolution because obviously the appetite here is to know what the forecast is going to be for Tallahassee or for Apalachicola Bay. And so we need to hone down to these finest possible resolutions. Mm -hmm. And even the most modern operational weather and climate forecasting agencies are struggling to provide that very fine scale resolution information that people at the most uh, local level would require. So again, the question reverts back to, is it possible to predict at such fine spatial scale resolutions or not? That's one scientific research. The other scientific research is technology-based. How can we make it affordable? How can we make it possible practically? And the third kind of research is how finer can we go down in spatial and temporal scales? Yeah, that's. I think I remember reading that in um, your publication that came out in like February 2019. This uh-huh. year, um, talking about it was like the shallow bathymetry of the West Florida Shelf, right? And also, it was the resolution that you guys were focusing on. Exactly. So, what is often misunderstood about weather forecasts? Of primary concern here is, um, or I think the major misconception is that weather is predictable out to about seven days into the future. And seasonal climate is being predicted out to a season. So how do we reconcile this contradiction that weather cannot be predicted usefully beyond seven days or so? And how come we are making the seasonal climate prediction out to a season three months in advance? Or uh, now we are also into the business of looking at 
decadal predictions out to 10 years in advance. So the weather prediction is an initial value problem. The seasonal climate prediction is, in some sense, a boundary value problem. So I'm bringing in a lot of verbiage here, and <laughs> I need to explain what I mean by yeah. that. Uh, initial value problem can probably be explained in this very famous adage that has been attributed to various people, uh, but it really relates to the theory of chaos, that the flap of a butterfly wing in the Amazon forest can cause a hurricane in the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. So the atmospheric motion, like any other fluid motion, is quite chaotic. So knowing the current weather as of this moment to its exact and accurate scales is very difficult because all our models are discretized. What do I mean by that? We break up the planet into small chunks of squares mm -hmm. or uh, some kind of a trapezoid or some form of a quadrilateral or some kind of a grid. So we discretize it. Why do we discretize it? Because in order to integrate our equations of motion and laws of thermodynamics, we need to break those equations into these discrete forms so that we are able to integrate this over time. Mm -hmm. So the moment we break down a continuous fluid system into these very discrete squares or shapes, uh, we immediately begin to make errors. So even in assessing the current weather or weather at any given instant of time, we make a lot of mistakes. So going back to the chaos theory, flap of a butterfly uh, wing can mm. cause a hurricane, uh, comes back to this point that if you're making errors in describing the weather at any given instant of time, then predicting from that erroneous description of weather at any given instant of time, instant of time out into the future becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. So weather is an initial value problem. We are trying to assess and make our best estimation of what the current weather is so that the errors in estimating the current weather is the least so that we don't propagate that error when we make the weather prediction. So that's weather prediction. And we always, always will have errors in the weather forecast because we are limited by how we describe instant weather. Now, coming to the seasons, what the, the kind of prediction that we make out in a season over a seasonal timescale is not a weather three months from today. The prediction that we are making is what are the chances or the likelihood of a certain type of weather occurring in the season ahead? Will we have more clear days or more rainy days? More uh, warmer days or more colder days? Okay. Right? So it's less of like, what's the weather going to be like at this time? And more of like, what are the patterns going to be like at this time? What's the likelihood? We are not going to say, when is it going to be exactly dry? When is it going to be exactly clear? When is it going to be raining? But we'll more than likely say that the frequency of having more rainier days is likely to be higher. 
in the season. So it's a boundary value problem in the sense that we are able to look at the likelihood of the frequency of certain types of weather occurring out into the future because it's being forced by boundary conditions. What are those boundary conditions for weather? The ocean temperatures or for that matter the radiative forcing by greenhouse gases when we make projections out into the future climate. So they are conditioning the weather systems to have a certain type of or the certain likelihoods or likelihood of certain types of weather systems to occur more frequently or less frequently. So that's what we are after when we make long-term predictions. Yeah. But when we are making short-term predictions, we are making weather forecasts, whether we'll have two inches of rain tomorrow or not, or whether we'll have five degrees of drop in temperature tomorrow or not. That's weather forecast. Climate forecasters watch the likelihood of certain types of weather occurring. So very long answer for a short question. <laughs> Good answer, though. <laughs> um, we appreciate it. Um, so I know that we know that a lot of your work has to do with like numerical models. And um, we were hoping that you would describe regional atmospheric models compared to ocean atmospheric models. So regional applies to both atmosphere, ocean, or whatever model that you're working with. Regional is basically taking a global model and, and condensing it to a given region. Okay. Okay. So you can have a regional ocean model, and we do work with regional ocean model. We also work with regional atmospheric model. Ideally speaking, in an ideal world, we should never seek a regional model. Why? Because the global model, if you can bring it down to the resolutions that we desire, then global model would be the ideal model to have because uh, atmospheric fluid system or the ocean is a continuous system. So the, when we work with the regional model, we are putting up barricades on the four sides. And so those barricades are very artificial. Ultimately, the regional models have to be fed information at the lateral boundaries, and they come from the global models. So it's not the best scenario to run a numerical model, but it's a practical solution to our a growing desire to go to finer and finer and finer spatial resolutions. And regional models are addressing a very important demand that is being sought by societies across the world. What is going to happen to my county? What is going to happen to my zip code? That desire to get this information to the finest resolution possible is, I think, going to be ever present that's super interesting to think about um so why are this one's a biggie why are ocean atmosphere models important so obviously um the atmosphere model is necessary because in lots of instances we don't have observations this is for atmosphere but likewise for the ocean as well assessing the anticipated change on account or impact of weather or climate is a huge thing both over terrestrial areas as well as the ocean areas and all of this is possible by numerical models and the development that we have made over the years is it important that those two interact the ocean and the atmosphere in very models? good question so that's the thing so <laughs> yeah, over the, the real thing uh, over the years uh, we have developed so initially when these numerical models were developed 
the meteorologists were in a separate department, the oceanographers were in a separate <laughs> department, yeah. and they all independently developed their numerical models and were developing it things on their own. The components of the climate, components of the weather are constantly interacting. Even if you go down to the weather time scale, if you look at Atlantic hurricanes out in the open ocean, it's not happening out in the atmosphere without affecting the ocean. The strong winds are churning the ocean and that has an impact on the ocean temperature and obviously the ocean temperature has a huge impact on the life cycle of the Atlantic tropical cyclone. So on a weather time scale you can see that the ocean and the atmosphere are interacting. Likewise on a climate time scale we have this El Nino and the southern oscillation and that oscillation as we have learned over years and decades of observations that we have taken out in the equatorial Pacific we have come to understand that the ocean and the atmosphere are co-evolving with each other. They're talking to each other. Instantaneously, the sea surface temperatures change and that gets communicated to the overlying atmosphere and the overlying atmosphere then changes itself and when it interacts with the ocean surface at the interface, it is affecting the sea surface temperature. So there is certainly a co-evolving component of our environment that was ignored when we were building these reductionist systems, the atmosphere models separately and the ocean models. So in the 80s and the 90s, when our computational resources had a transformative change, we began to couple these independent models so that they co-evolve with each other. So a number of forecasting uh, centers around the world have now uh, adopted these models that are talking to each other on a constant basis and co-evolving. There are lots of issues still that needs to be resolved, but I think we are moving in the right direction. Uh, do you mind if we talk about climate change? Sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> kind of as a whole. Um, I have one that you might think is pretty fun to talk about. Say someone didn't really believe in climate change, mm -hmm. and one of their arguments was that models are unreliable. What would you say to that person? Let me think. Because <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is an argument that we you sometimes hear from people that don't believe in climate change. Well, um, let's not go to the modeling world. Let's see what has happened in the last 100 years. There is no part of the globe which is cooling. I pause there for a moment <laughs> because Southeast was considered to be one of those isolated pockets and Southeast China as well, which was thought to be regions of warming hole. Because if you look at the surface temperature trends over 100 years, displaying cooling trends. But in the most recent decades, we see that the rate of cooling has decreased in these two regions. I don't think there is any big coherent region around the globe that has displayed anything but warming. So even without relying on models... Going back to 100 years, we see this trend of warming, which is quite overwhelming. So even if you don't go into the projection area mm -hmm. uh, and models are 
uncertain and our models are unreliable. Okay, I grant that. But if you go back into the past, uh, this is what we see. Okay. So if someone said models were unreliable, you're basically saying even without models. If you look back into the past, one very convincing argument uh, to explain this uniform warming across the planet is the rising concentration of CO2 gases. So let me add something more. Uh, even out in the open oceans where the emissions are not as much because most of the emission is in the terrestrial areas. So how do you explain the warming that is happening out in the uh, open oceans mm. or in remote locations in the Arctic or in the Antarctic region where the emissions locally is very little to begin with. But uh, all these greenhouse gases mix very well and very easily. So even if you uh, emit all these greenhouse gases in China, India, US, Japan, it doesn't mean that they remain there. Yeah, They mix very well, very quickly. So the concentration of CO2, whether you measure it in Hawaii or you measure it in Shanghai, is more or less going to be very uniform. Very cool. All right, so now I think we're going to focus a little bit on uh, still climate change, but specifically Florida. Mm -hmm. um, so right now on the Human Development Index, which factors in health, education, and wealth, and sort of ranks places that are like maybe the word happy is maybe reductive, but like places that are the happiest to live in. Um, Florida is considered to be ninth in the world if it were its own country. How do you think that's going to change with climate change coming so close to us with what's happening on coastlines and what's going to be happening in the state of Florida. Yes, I'm aware of this study which does claim that uh, Florida is one of those places where generally people are quite happy. And obviously climate here makes it very conducive for that emotion to be widespread. But the misery that can potentially be caused by extreme weather events, especially landfalling tropical cyclones, mm -hmm. is going to be a huge issue. Misery because of the sea level rise, which has been gradual, is going to rise. Now, the sea level rise issue is gradual, but when you put on top of it the storm surge, uh, the damages are going to be more widespread than ever before. You have this sunny day flooding that is already happening in South Florida, and that is already causing some misery. And what is that? So on a clear sunny day, streets are getting flooded when you have high tides. That never used to happen in the past, but because the sea level rise has happened over the last several decades, high tide plus little bit of sea level rise has now brought the waters into downtown Miami. So that's called sunny day flooding. In the past, it would sound like an oxymoron, yeah. but now it's happening, right? But when you have these extreme weather events that doesn't give you as much of a notice, uh, then problems begin to call, uh, are certainly going to rise. The other issue is the amount of built infrastructure that has happened within 10 miles from the coast. That, I don't see that stopping, whether climate change is happening or not. And that's simply because of the rising wealth of the people. 
they can afford it. Yeah. They have disposable income. What better place to invest than 10 miles from the coast? Because uh, people who are able to afford and build these mansions or casinos or hotels or what have you uh, are able to afford building it. Mm-hmm. Right? So uh, the pressure to build at the coast because the desire for people to come and enjoy the coast is always going to be there whether climate change happens or not happens. But when you build such infrastructure, the socially vulnerable people, the economically vulnerable people have no choice but to come closer to the coast because that's where the opportunities are. And when you have the clash of this rising wealth, rising infrastructure, and these socially and economically vulnerable people settling close by with very little safeguard, with increasing likelihood of these extreme events and sea level rise events happening, uh, I can just envision the misery that will happen to a large fraction of the population who have been forced to settle there because of the opportunities that is coming up in those places. So it's a mixture of climate change plus other socioeconomic factors that I think will unfortunately increase misery for a majority of the people who are going to live. Is there any way, and would it be worth it, to make climate change modeling more palatable to people who aren't scientifically literate? We can say that the world is going to warm at the rate of 2 degrees per century Mm. with CO2 concentrations doubling from its present level and leave it at that. Or we could go about explaining why is it that rate of warming is believable. So I think the question of convincing the people of the answers that we are seeing is equally important and as important as just conveying the results that two degrees, take it or leave it. Yeah. Uh, For example, the Paris Climate Agreement, Mm. that we will work with the idea of restricting the emissions to such a level that we don't have warming more than one and a half degrees. Well, how does it matter whether it is one and a half degrees or two degrees, right? They could have left it at that. But there was a reasoning why they wanted to limit it because obviously if you are able to limit by various means uh, the greenhouse gas emissions so that the global mean temperature is restricted to one and a half degrees rise in the next 100 years or next 50 or 60 years, uh, that would possibly reduce the likelihood of the frequency of the extreme weather events or moderate or temper down the extreme events. But that, I think, convincing them of the reasons why we believe these answers to be more probable is very important. Mm -hmm. What is the consequence of global mean temperature of 2 degrees centigrade? Yeah. Global mean temperature. What is the consequence for residents of Tallahassee? 
because it's a global mean temperature. It's averaging the temperature of Antarctica to Arctic from uh, eastern United States all the way across the world to western United States, right, or back to eastern U.S. So it's the global mean temperature. So when a 2 degree uh, rise in temperature in the global mean temperature by 2100, what does it mean to person who is residing in Leon County, someone who is attending the FSU campus here? What does it mean? Mm. Okay, that's a challenging question. Yeah. Uh, And that needs to be translated. But that is of absolute consequence uh, for everyone around the world. Yeah, that's really important, communicating that kind of stuff, because I feel like some some folks would hear, you know, oh, the 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 temperatures are going to rise by this much. And some people would think, oh, well, it's so it's going to be a little bit warmer. Like, and what's the deal? So this is a great segue to bring in the Florida Climate Assessment. Awesome. Florida Climate Institute. So this is exactly what we are proposing at the Florida Climate Institute, that what does a 2 degree centigrade rise in the global mean temperature at 2100 mean mm-hmm. for residents in North Florida, for residents in Central Florida, for residents in South Florida, for residents in uh, the Southeast Coast? What does it mean to Everglades? What does it mean in the Southwestern Coast of uh, South Florida? What does it all mean? Uh, so we need to translate that information. And that requires a focused study on assessing the climate output from all these IPCC models and the uh, regional modeling work that we are doing here to really make the best judgment possible and filter all that information and bring it to a level where policymakers sitting in city of Tallahassee or at the Leon County level, or at Apalachicola Bay, or at the mayoral level, or at the city councils, they are all able to read through this document mm. and make the best judgment possible about several decisions that they have to make as they move further. Because Florida is in a cusp of a lot of things. Our demography is changing dramatically, and it's anticipated to change even further as we move along. We are going to bring in more uh, people into the state over the years, not only within uh, from within U.S., but across the border from the Caribbean region, from South America, right? We are bringing in more senior people. We are going to bring in more uh, people of different races. There's going to be more diversity in our population. So th- I can think of lots of different policy decisions that are going to be made and making those policy decisions in the absence of understanding how our climate is going to change in a changing world is going to put a lot of people in the crosshairs of the variability of climate especially for a state like florida Mm -hmm. and florida being the third largest state in this country uh, by its sheer size, is going to attract a lot of resources, going to attract a lot of human and capital resources. And that requires a lot of planning with or without this assessment. And you'll be better off with this kind of an assessment. So that's that's something you guys are proposing right now? That's in the works. Awesome. Uh, so uh, we are hoping uh, that uh, the state department's uh, in Florida, 
uh, will leverage the scientific expertise that is distributed across the public universities and the uh, private universities in Florida and help them assess the potential impacts of climate change and climate variability on uh, tourism, public health, water resources, and what have you, insurance, and so on and so forth. Very cool. That's really good to hear. Being in Tallahassee itself is a great opportunity since we're so close to um, the capital. And I I was wondering, like, this is being proposed right now. Is there any, like, estimation when this might actually take place? Obviously, the ideal scenario is we wanted to take wanted it to take place yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm glad uh, that uh, the talks have begun in earnest, at least amongst the university groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are hoping with the new administration that has come in, uh, there will be some traction and we might be able to uh, unleash this assessment, which I think is absolutely vital for the state. Definitely. I think it's very important and a pressing issue. So something to look forward to. Is there anything we can do about that? Like just as regular people? to help with that i don't know i mean this is an ideal scenario where i think a petition that can go out to your representatives or the local government petition signed by a huge population uh, or residents would certainly make them more receptive to this idea Uh, and given the fact that the election, the state elections were so close that it was determined by a few percentage points here or there, I think getting at least that percentage of the population who are receptive to the idea that climate change may have an impact could be useful mm-hmm. in the sort of an exercise where where we could certainly uh, apply concerted concern that is prevalent in our society here in Florida, at least to make them aware that it is not really that we don't care. Mm -hmm. There is a widespread concern and even curiosity. I mean, what exactly does it mean for someone who is in a dorm here at FSU? What does it How does it matter? Wow, that was a really good, fun episode to be listening to just now. I think that was really informative and good, and I did just hear it. Uh, Same, same. Got a lot of content there that we heard that will also be on our Instagram. Um, (laughs) No Planet BFSU, guys, if you want to... Give us now a that follow. is that is no planet B F S U comma guys. The word guys isn't in. Yeah, yeah, guys is not a part of the handle. Clarification. Clarification. No planet B F S U. Hell yeah! Um, and if you want to check out any of our references or the websites that uh, are associated to this particular episode, you can check out um, no planet B cast is the name of our Twitter handle, and we'll be posting. Um, uh, probably a PDF of all of those if you're curious if you want to get involved we'll probably have some links to um, to help you accommodate that 
yeah and uh thanks for listening it means so much and um have a good rest of your good day your already hopefully good day or night whatever or night it doesn't matter have a good whatever it was have a good rest of it see you guys